So we're uh, working our way through 2 Corinthians. We're up to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. Uh, text is in the bulletin and also uh, up on the screens behind me. Um, this is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. So there's a great book that was out, I guess, in the 70s, uh, I think now, um, So I guess it's considered a classic now, classical, medieval. Um, So uh, that uh, by Annie Dillard called The The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And um, I remember reading this book. Maybe I was in college when I read it. But anyway, um, there's a great scene in it where she goes to this little church and she goes every week. And uh, uh, the pastor stands in front of the people and he prays through the liturgy every week. They do the do the liturgy and he, he prays through it. And then one Sunday he's, he's there and he's praying and he stops in the middle of his prayer and they're praying for justice and righteousness, for grace and mercy, for wisdom, for leaders and uh, for healing and all that kind of stuff. And then he stops in the middle of the prayer and says, Lord, we pray about these things every single week. And then he goes on with the liturgy. Now, there's a gasp from the people when he does that. And they're stunned because he departed from the liturgy. But more than that, he was honest. And nobody comes to church for honesty. (laughs) You don't think that's funny? I think that's hilarious. Uh, Because in my experience... uh, we don't leave room in much of what we do in church for what we read about in this text. I am uncomfortable with sadness. I am uncomfortable with grief. I am uncomfortable with people who are struggling. And maybe you think, well, you know what? I'm, I'm not that uncomfortable with it. I am comfortable with it so long as I can control it and control my interaction with them 
so that I can be with them and care for them and preach the gospel to them in, in a way in which I'm in control. But the second it gets out of my control, I don't want any part of that because they might demand something from me. They might put me in a situation that makes me uncomfortable. And trust me, you know, if, if uh, tolerance is, is out the window in our culture, then nobody wants to be uncomfortable ever, especially by somebody else who is making me uncomfortable because they're sad or they're up, upset or they're sick. Right. So so the thing about it is so what we do and one of the things that is so profound about this text is Paul is he says here he's commending his ministry. He's saying, listen, I'm an apostle and you should listen to me because I have removed all the obstacles from uh, me being able to proclaim the gospel to you and you being able to hear the gospel from me. But look at what he says. What is it that that what what are the obstacles? Well, I think that's a great question for us because this this text is full of paradoxes. It is full of things that are um, one thing set up against another of. uh, And and as I said in my letter, you know, he says that he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Right. So so we look at that and we think that's very difficult for us because we it's hard for us to bring those two things together. But. But what what better day to bring those two things together than on Mother's Day? Because in this room, there are, are, are folks who are grieving the loss of their mothers. There are women here who long to be mothers and who are not. There are people here who think about their moms in ways that are hard because their moms were were not good moms. And there, do you want me to keep going down the catalog of, of, of all all the other things that that could be true about about those those things? I mean, uh, the, the the people who want to be moms and can't, or the the people who are moms who've lost children, or or on and on and on, right? And so so in the midst of that, here we are. We gather together and we we sing praises to our God and we hope in the resurrection and we look to Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith and. And we we hold that in one hand at the same time that we hold in the other hand grief and sadness. And both are true. And both are real. And both must exist in the same place in the same time. They must. And that's what Paul's recognizing here. And I, uh, go ahead and put my put my notes up there. Uh, the the thing that I think is is interesting about this is is that Paul's addressing. Look, we have placed no obstacle in front of you. Now, when we hear that, one of the things we tend to think that the obstacle to believing the gospel might be our our own sin, perhaps our own um, um, the fact that we're we're hypocritical. Certainly that could be an obstacle or, or, or maybe the obstacle is that, that we're the, that we have questions that are asked of us of the faith that, that are too hard for us to answer or, or that require a degree in physics that we don't have or something like that or, or any number of those things. But in this text, what Paul is getting at is, is that the obstacle of, of the, 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 the biggest obstacle that he's removed is the obstacle of dishonesty. Because what he wants us to see is, look, I have proclaimed the gospel to you and, and of the goodness and the riches and the mercy and the power of God in the midst of pain and suffering, 
in the midst of afflictions, in the midst of imprisonment, in the midst of, of death threats, in the midst of criticism, in the midst of slander, in the midst of gossip, in the midst of all of those things, he has proclaimed the goodness of God. And let me just say to you right now that the, the, the truth of the matter is uh, that probably one of the biggest obstacles to the proclamation of the gospel in our own lives, and maybe the reason why we're often ineffective in telling people about Jesus is we have not left room in our proclamation for brokenness. We have not left room in our understanding that of lament. We've not left room in our, in our proclamation of that, of recognizing that this world is not heaven. And, and, and recognizing that, that our hope and that our joy, the, the glimpse and the, the grasp that we have on that now is like seeing through a glass darkly. And yes, I mean, you have, as I asked, said last week, we have to come to grips with the fact that the cross is big, that the tomb is empty. And at the same time, we have to ask the question, what is it about us and this world that required the death of the Son of God? We have to hold those two things in, in tension with one another. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. And so he says to the church, Jesus Christ is the only way. His resurrection and his kingdom are, are the source of life and grace and mercy. And at the same time, we must leave room for lament. We must leave room for Psalm 13. We must leave room and our lives and in our fellowship and in our church for the person who's here today who's dying, for the person who's here today who's struggling with grief, for the person who's here today who's afraid, the person who's here today who's heartbroken. Because if all we have is chipper, uh, as John John, uh, Piper says, frisky, No one's ever accused me of that. Frisky (laughs) words. Then there's no place in the gospel for the recognition that the cross stands over human sin and rebellion and brokenness and suffering and difficulty. Right? And so what we have to recognize about this is, is that we are, the, the constant cry is, that Jesus is good and that he is Lord and that he is our hope. And how long? How long? Um, and when I say how long, I don't, I don't, I don't mean that in a, in, in, in a kind of immature way. I mean that in, in a heartfelt way. One of, one of the things that I recognize when uh, we recognize when our kids were little is, um, you know, when blood sugar began to go down, Behavior just went out the window. You know, if somebody was hungry, pretty soon somebody's going to be crying. It's just, so you got to do something about it. And so oftentimes it would start whining, crying. I'm hungry, I'm starving, I can't make it, you know, on and on and on. And they get mad and they start hitting each other. And they had enough energy to wing their toys at each other, but... You know, they would just be so sad. While their mother's in the kitchen and they can see her, she's fixing dinner. This this thing I am preparing for you is going to be yours. In a matter of minutes, literally, this is going to be inside you. Okay? <laughs> but you would think 
it was like nothing was happening and that there was no, no, no provision or anything like that at all. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the recognition that, um, I live in a world where things are hard. And praise God, that's not all there is. That Jesus Christ sees me, knows me, and loves me, and is redeeming me and redeeming this world in the midst of that. But we have to hold both of those things together. So what Paul says here is that he, he says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And then he quotes this passage from, uh, um, uh, uh, from Isaiah, which I think is, which is a pretty, which is a, a pretty great, uh, text for us to read. Uh, next, next slide, please, Liz. So he says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. This is pretty impressive stuff. This is the claim of God upon, uh, 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 Isaiah and his people from, from, uh, from birth. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. He said to me, you're my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. <laughs> right? Uh, I've said this before, and I will say it again. One of the most worthwhile things you can do is do a word study in the New Testament epistles on the phrase in vain. It was a concern that Paul had that what he was doing could be in vain or that the the effect of the church could be in vain. It was something that he struggled with and something that he wondered about all the time. Now, he always ended up. With where he does in 1 Corinthians 15, giving and abounding ourselves and giving ourselves over to the work of the Lord because of the resurrection. We know it's not in vain, but there is much in the world to tempt us to believe to and to despair that what we are doing literally is in vain, right? But I, he said, I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God. So God looks on me. God sees me. I will trust him in the midst of this challenge. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, and this is how God responds to his question, (laughs) that what I've done is in vain. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, I know you think what you're doing is in vain, but let me tell you, I'm going to give you a promotion. So you're not just going to be ministering to the house of Israel. Now I'm going to make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you, right? So uh, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I've answered you. In a day of salvation, I've helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, right? So what he's getting at there is, is that 
listen, the, 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 the prophet comes to him and sees the terrible devastation of sin. He sees the terrible devastation of sin among the people. He sees it in himself. He recognizes that he is not what he should be. He's recognizing that the people are not what they should be. And he is struggling to see the fruit and the effectiveness of his work being lived out and manifest in the people that he's worth, that he is dealing with. And what, what God says to him is, listen, I know this is hard. I know this is difficult. I know it is challenging. But what I want you to understand is I'm actually going to do something even bigger than what you thought I was going to do. And I am for you and I am with you. Now, now, why would it, why would God have to tell us that? Why would God have to keep saying to us that he is for us? Well, the reason why he has to keep saying that to us is because he knows that we are weak and that we are dust and that the temptation that we have in a world that is full of affliction and a world that is full of trouble, as Paul highlights here, we need to know and to experience and to see the power of the gospel. And, and, and you don't see and experience the power of the gospel if we deny the unre, if we deny the reality of the fallenness of the world. If we deny the reality of the sin that still lurks within our own hearts and lives. If we don't recognize the brokenness that we see in and around us. Right? I'm sure this morning there are some of you who are looking around, moms who are looking around, and you see other moms and you think their life is perfect. They got all their kids. They're good looking. Their kids believe the gospel. They behave. They, you know, look at that. Or you look around and you think you don't have that. that there's somebody that's a perfect family. There's no broken relationships in, in those families, Right? And listen, I'm all for families that are perfect. (laughs) You know, those of you with the perfect family out there, you encourage the rest of us, okay? (laughs) Let me just be, let me just be clear about that. But the, 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 even, do, do you see how crazy and wild that is? I can trust Christ. I can look to him. I can hope in him. And at the same time, still struggle with jealousy and envy over the blessing of God to other people. Right. So so what Paul seems to be indicating here is that a big obstacle to people hearing and responding in faith is that we're not presenting an accurate picture of life as a follower of Christ is. Our joy must be tempered with the reality of the fallenness of the world. And our struggle with the fallenness of the world must be tempered with the joy of the gospel. We must hold those two things uh, together. Next slide. Um, so um, I'm going to date myself here, and and some of you are going to, this is going to give you cause to mock me even more than you do. And that is that um, uh, this past March uh, uh, was the 30th anniversary of the fifth album, of a Irish rock band called U2 30 years ago. Now, some of you, that's like, is that, what is that, medieval? Did you learn that in medieval, uh, you know, classical uh, music or something, you know? What is that, you know? Is that is that on the oldie station, you know? Uh, what is that? Well, uh, I remember uh, being in youth ministry when this uh, album came out uh, 30 years ago, and... Uh, 
just being amazed by it. Okay. And so I came across an article this week about that. And then there's some great songs on the album. Some of you probably think it's, it's the worst thing ever. One of the things, and I hesitate to say this because, because I'm, I'm a Calvinist and I believe in the sovereignty of God. If I, if I brag on Bono about this this morning, then he'll go and do something to make me a liar. But, uh, He's been married to the same woman for 40 years. You know, not many rock and rollers can say that, right? So I think that's pretty cool. Uh, But anyway, uh, there's some great songs, great lyrics on uh, the Joshua Tree. And uh, uh, one of my favorite all-time songs ever, and my, my kids will tell you this as well, uh, is on that album. And one of the uh, parts of the, the song goes, you broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, oh, my shame. You know, I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Now, I know, I said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. What I'm about to read in this paragraph, a commentary on that is going to describe the different reactions in the room to this, to this lyric, right? So in classic U2 fashion, it was a lyric riddled with paradoxes and contradictions and so raised questions and can be variously interpreted and provided challenges. For Christians raised in conservative youth groups who regarded rock music as of the devil or worse, uh, here was a challenging alternative role model who demonstrated how Christians can engage with the world. Some Christians, and this, this, I think this describes many of us, some Christians so tied to the view that the God-shaped hole is satisfyingly filled in this age by the Christian faith wondered what he was still looking for. <laughs> he can't be a Christian because he's still looking for it, which is, is interesting because those of us who are even a little bit older remember all the bumper stickers in the 70s and 60s that said, I found it. Do you, do you guys remember those? Some, is there somebody old enough in here to remember that? Yeah, okay, yeah. I think I know what they meant, and I think that was a good thing. But I also think I know what Bono's talking about here as well, right? Um, others appreciated the honest admission of difficulties in the now on the road to kingdom come, which is not yet. But for those with no connection to the Christian faith at all, the song and the album it was from and the band who recorded it and the man who sang it had put the Christian faith on the agenda of mainstream popular culture and asked, have you found what you're looking for? And invited them to join them in their search for all the other hype about the Joshua Tree. That was and remains a stunning achievement. And I think I think there's something right about that. You know, when Paul says he's removed these obstacles, one of the things that he's that one of the ways in which those obstacles are removed is that we can say in agreement with people who do not believe the gospel, we can we can agree when there is injustice and suffering and pain that that is wrong and it shouldn't be. Now, and, and, and I think we can have that agreement and be honest about that and have an honest discussion about what it means to live in a world where things are broken and then to ask the question, all right, we agree that things are broken and we agree that we are on the road to looking for something else. What is it that you're looking for? Here's what I'm looking for.
right? Even our father Abraham was a pilgrim who was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God, right? Next slide. So what commends Paul is not a chipper and successful ministry, but a faithful ministry marked by suffering and joy uh, simultaneously. And so that is the thing that we have to see that is happening here. I remember years ago uh, going to see a movie about some martyrs and uh, being stunned that as the martyrs were being killed, they were screaming out in pain. And, I, and the reason why I tell you that, why that was so stunning to me was, you know, I, it just seems like, well, if you're a martyr and you're a, a, you know, a follower of Christ so devoted to him that you would die, that when it came time to die, it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> right? And so, like, the guy's screaming in pain and you're like, well, that's not right. You're right. That's not right. So how do, what are, how do we do this? Well, Paul goes on and he gives us this catalog, a, a, uh, almost a dozen paradoxes, right? He says, one of the things that he says is that when we live and we work in light of the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us, we will face opposition. I mean, look at, look at what he says here. I think that is, that's pretty profound, right? So he addresses all these calamities and imprisonments and riots and labors and sleepless nights and hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit. It's almost a list of the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, right? So he goes on to say that. Now, now the thing that's stunning to, to me about this and one of the things that's most alarming about this is is that Paul is commending his ministry. He says he's removed every roadblock and he's done that by trusting the gospel. And as he has entrusted himself to Christ, he's been filled with the Holy Spirit, with purity, with knowledge, with truthful speech and in all of those things. And what's the result of that? Well, the result of that is honor and dishonor. Slander and praise, imposters and truth. One of the great things about my job and one of the things that I love about doing what I do is the opportunity I have every year to sit down with members of my staff and we do performance reviews. Do you know that? We do performance reviews. And um, there have been occasions in the past when people have come to me and said, you know, my performance review has got to be really, really good, right? And I'm like, why? And they're like, because no one's complained. And of course, I'm like, well, I can't tell whether you're a good leader or not. Well, why can't you tell? No one's complained. I'm like, that's just it. You must not be leading. No one's complaining. <laughs> you, you're not having any impact if you're not making somebody mad. You're not having any impact if somebody's not disappointed. You're not having any impact if there's not some slander about you going on somewhere. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, what did I sign up for? I need to go work somewhere else. I mean, the, 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 you know, we, that's exactly what he says. The, the actual fruit of the Holy Spirit in his life is that he gets treated the way he gets treated. 
And so in some sense, in some respect, faithfulness to the gospel and an understanding of the truth of Jesus dying for sinners will ultimately at some point bring about folks who are disappointed or who slander us or gossip or, or uh, uh, in Paul's case, throw him in jail, right? And so he sets up all of these, these different uh, situations that he finds himself in, that he, is, uh, he has honor and dishonor, that people will slander him and people will praise him. And, and you know, in that case of the slander and praise, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that's not the same people maybe within a week. It's not been totally out of my experience that that happens. He's called an imposter while he's truthful to the gospel. Nobody really knows what he's doing. He's, you know, he doesn't have a great marketing campaign yet. God knows him. He's dying. He recognizes that, but he also understands that Christ is living in him and will raise him from the dead. He experiences punishment and imprisonments and, and terrible things that happen to him. And yet he knows that God has preserved his life for the sake of the gospel. He is sorrowful because he sees himself and the world around him as broken as it is. And yet he hopes in the gospel and he has joy knowing that Jesus is a redeemer. He's poor. Yet he's making many rich in the gospel of Christ by reminding them of the fact that Jesus is the owner of all and he has nothing. And yet in Christ, because Jesus possesses him, he possesses everything. Listen, here's the thing. When you hold up Jesus Christ in front of other people, when you hold him up in front of yourself, when you proclaim the gospel, When you look to him in hope and in joy, when you do those things, leave room in that proclamation and leave room in your heart and in your experience for the brokenness of the world. Leave room there for lament. Leave room there for uh, an understanding that things even though the gospel is good and Jesus is alive and he will raise me from the dead. We still go to funerals. And so what we recognize is, is that our hope is in the, is, is in the reality of this person, Jesus Christ, who's lived, died, and risen again for us. And yet, and yet, we long and we wait. And we lament the fact that the fullness of the kingdom, we don't see it and we don't experience it just yet. One other word about this. Um, we, as a, I've said this before, uh, I said it to a couple this week in premarital counseling, and I'm going to say it again because we, we struggle with this. Um, in our particular context, uh, the, the way we don't leave room for sadness and brokenness is not because we deny it, but because we get angry. We love outrage. We love it. That's my favorite way to get through the day is find two or three things that I can be outraged about And that gets me through my day. 
<laughs> right? That gives me some energy, man. I was like, this feels like life being, that, that shouldn't be that way. And I can get mad about it, right? And there's certainly a place for some of us for righteous indignation, although we must temper that with the promise of God that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Let me urge you today to leave room in your hearts and your lives, not just for anger and indignation at the sin that is around us and the sin that is in us, but leave room, leave room to be sorrowful yet rejoicing in the hope of a king who has come, who's lived, who's died, who's risen again and will take us to be with him forever. Let's pray. Lord, uh, help us not to place obstacles in front of people by being dishonest about uh, pain and suffering and difficulty. Help us not to place obstacles in people by building fellowship based around outrage and anger. Help us rather, as Paul says, uh, to be sorrowful and yet rejoicing, uh, to understand uh, the difficulty of the world and yet put our hope uh, in uh, you and what you have accomplished for us. Lord, I pray that you would make us a congregation where there is room for the struggle, room for uh, the suffering, uh, room for the sad and the sick and the dying, a room for uh, those who uh, struggle with doubt and uh, uncertainty, struggle with pain. And so, Lord, I I pray that our... uh, Proclamation of the gospel, our appropriation of the gospel in our lives would not become an obstacle to the faith of others. That we could be honest and direct and straightforward about the hope that we have that shines in a broken world. Lord, we ask these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.